Hello, this is Patrick, and it's time for Real Herbalism Radio. Real herbs, real life, real easy. Brought to you by thepracticalherbalist.com and sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, your source for high-quality, organic, bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. Visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. For centuries, plant medicine was the dominant medicine worldwide. Around about a century ago, the modern medical system we know today took the field in force, relegating herbalists to the back alleys for decades. Over the past couple of decades, herbalists like Nicole Telkish have built a new appreciation of herbal practices as a way of life. Today, we're talking with Nicole about where we've been and where we're going. Now, here are your hosts, Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sue Sierra Lupe. And, and welcome, welcome to Real Herbalism Radio. So today we are super thrilled to have Nicole Telkesh here. Welcome, Nicole. Hello. Thank you. She is the owner, correct, owner of Wildflower School of Botanical Medicine mm-hmm. in Austin, Texas. Owner? Yes, the di- I'm the director. Director. The Thank director. you. I knew I had that title <laughs> quite wrong. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, she's here today to talk with us a bit about her history with herbalism. and mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I have been camping with your friend Karen for a long time, and she's been telling me stories of your <laughs> journeys and your adventures. And the preface that she always starts with was... Uh, Piss and vinegar stories. She tells me, well, when we were traveling through California, and then she starts to tell me something that gives me yet another gray hair. But (laughs) we don't have to start there. Do you want to tell us about how you ended up in herbalism and what your history is? Yeah, I uh, started with my grandmother, actually, who is a Polish or was a Polish immigrant um, from the you know, World War II, she came over to Canada with her family, and my mom was born in England, and so they lived up in in Canada, in uh, Toronto, and every summer we would go to this little cabin, lake house north of Toronto in Upper Ontario, where I would wildcraft mushrooms and pick Mm -hmm. berries and uh, talk to foxes and just play in the woods all summer. So uh, that was my first introduction to kind of herbalism and, and hanging out with plants and and being outside a lot. That sounds uh, like absolute dream. <laughs> it was. It was great. Um, and then I had somebody who was uh, who would stay up there with us sometimes when uh, you know how parents need a break. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you know, somebody stay up there with us. There was a family friend, Pani Mila, and she was really the first herbalist I uh, was kind of exposed to because she would make me drink terrible things when my stomach hurt. And I just remember (laughs) they tasted terrible, but she'd be like, you have to drink this. And she was also in the concentration camps. She came from Russia. And um, so she, all of the herbal knowledge they brought with them from Eastern Europe and Russia and so my grandmother and her both uh, had, you know, it was normal to have a garden, 
normal to have herbs that you picked and mushrooms and wild things. And so that, and then my grandmother in Hungary is, is she just passed, but she was the same way where, uh, you know, it's not unusual in Europe for most grandmothers (laughs) to have gardens and be using herbs. So it, for her, it's not like this special thing to be an herbalist because everybody was an herbalist Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until recently that that sort of thing kind of has drifted away and now it's special and you have to go to a special school for it. So, Mm -hmm. um, I would like to see it just become a normal thing again. But from there, I kind of, I kind of got away from herbalism as I grew up because I was growing up in, you know, suburbia, Texas. And I think a lot of people can, can, um, relate to that. And so that was, that was kind of like hell and uh, and then I moved to Hong Kong and Massachusetts because my dad traveled around a lot with his work. So I've lived in different parts of the world, but I always kept coming back to Texas, and that caused me to act out. <laughs> so so um, suburbia caused caused me to act out. And there was, I think, a really great a movie that I saw somebody being interviewed about called "The Decline of Western Civilization" about you know uh, kids that acted out against that life, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came back to herbalism after high school um, through kind of the interest in, in magic and, and witch, witchery and what could we do with things that we, we don't, you know, get in everyday life. And so I was kind of looking for, you know, spiritual connection. And I think I found it through, um, through witchcraft and magic. And then that led me into herbalism as a um, more of a profession and a practice with people and what I mean by profession is I, I decided in when I went to college <clears throat> I was going to go save the earth and you know I decided to go study environmental resource management because when I asked at you know my college here in Austin if I could study herbs, they kind of laughed at me and they said, well, we teach economic botany once every two years. Oh, so, <laughs> that, that left me with, uh, with studying environmental resource management, which was actually great because I got to do a lot of uh, botany as a minor and field work and working with, uh, you know, constructing preserves, things like that. But it made me really depressed because it, mm-hmm. I kept finding out we were at, you know, we had already reached peak reserves and just about everything. So we were on the decline. Right. Mm-hmm. So it really was the decline yeah. of Western civilization. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty much if I had gone into that field, all I was going to be doing was sitting in an office, pushing papers and watching things disappear around me. So I pretty much graduated, got rid of everything, put a backpack on and went hitchhiking with <clears throat> Karen my friend Karen, because we decided that we wanted to be herbalists. And uh, I don't even know how it just started. I mean, we were using herbs, but it was just a hobby at that point. And we just made the decision, got a van for like less than a thousand dollars, I think. And then I don't even know how we came up with the money for that. And then we got in the van and decided to go to this thing in Oregon called Asylum, where 
Oh, no. These these, these punk rockers had decided they were going to organize politically. And so we were we decided we were going to go there and be their medical support. So and you're using the word organize really loosely. Yeah. And organize. Yeah. The two don't go together. Politically organized so that they became a more potent, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. force in America. (laughs) (laughs) It was really great. But uh, we got there and, and. basically it was one big fight and so it was yeah. it was funny yeah. because I, I tell this to my students now I'm like I had no idea I just decided I wanted to do something I packed up everything you know for sometimes I was hitchhiking sometimes I had you know I had this van that sometimes worked sometimes didn't mm-hmm. and me and Karen basically would show up to things with herbs and we never knew what was going to happen you know and what so, year was this that was uh 19. 19- 98 I think mm-hmm. okay. yeah maybe 99 mm-hmm. um, so we were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as far as the herbs go but you know what had got you know I had decided after doing a bunch I was in a lot of political um, I was doing a lot of political work on um, what's funny I'm, I'm kind of in agreement with Pope Francis right now but I can't mm-hmm. believe that he says this but Back then, I was doing a lot of stuff against the two-party system and capitalism, and now the Pope's on my side for some reason. Oh, that's so crazy. Weird. Yeah, <laughs> no. started a new movement against capitalism and the two-party system. I, I mean, it was just really <laughs> strange. I, was, I thought that that's what was called class war, but I don't think that the Pope would call for a class war, right? But um, <laughs> I know. It's a wacky world. It's really wacky world. So I was doing a lot of political work against, um, you know, capitalist uh, exploitation of our resources because what we saw was that corporations were just growing in such power that everything that was wrong with the world, in, in me and my friends' opinions, mm-hmm. was leading back to corporate control. So <laughs> at first, I wasn't going to get into herbalism. I was going to do criminal law to get my friends out of jail. Mm-hmm. But then I kept meeting these herbalists who would take me on plant walks in the middle of the old growth like Greta mm-hmm. or Grizz if some people know her on the west coast and um, Jasmine who has a, a school now up in Vancouver and they would take me out on these amazing plant walks and show me all these wild plants and it just did something to me and I from then on I wanted to learn everything I could learn about identifying and using plants to be self-reliant. So that's kind of in a roundabout way. It all started with this desire to kind of help preserve what was left of the earth. And and then I got hooked or, you know, on, on herbs along the way. Um, and, and, Karen Keaton was part of that journey. So we kind of entered it together and got hooked on it together and started our first, um, our first kind of, you know, direct action medical response, or I shouldn't say medical, but herbal response with experience in the field at just setting up at different, um, gatherings. Mm -hmm. So everything from, you know, there was something we we had train hopped over from Vancouver to Toronto to do another uh, gathering there where we set up there. I, maybe I yeah we did that together. So there was several gatherings that that happened, and then it grew and grew, and we kind of split ways after a while to go study. 
And I continued to set up action medical uh, stations at different protests like the WTO mm-hmm. in 2000 and then the IMF World Bank protests in D.C. in 2001 and, the, and different ones along the way where we would gather up supplies, get a bunch of herbalists together. And um, when people would go protest, you know, corporate dominance, we would go out with our supplies and Just protect heal. people. So you really created yourself as an herbal activist. Yeah. I mean, I blended my activism with my herbalism. And what I was finding as I learned more and more about healing and herbalism was that I was very unhealthy and that I was using activism as a distraction and taking it Mm -hmm. away from my own health. And my, I spent many years repairing uh, adrenal fatigue uh. <laughs> and PTSD. So I have a lot of clients now <laughs> to gravitate towards me because I have a lot of experience dealing with, you know, post uh, PTSD. Whether it's also people who are soldiers, you know, that there's yeah. a lot of mm-hmm. PTSD from that. So I just uh, found that I've have some good protocols for recovering from high-level activities in which you throw yourself in and um, don't know what's going to come out. (laughs) Can you give us some examples? Oh, yeah. Like uh, at the WTO when they... There was pepper spray, tear gas, concussion grenades, and we ha- were basically having to run through with herbs and try to figure out what to do when people got, you know, attacked by our, you know, oh by, by the police force there. And, um, and you know, we w- there was actually pepper spray trials at one point that happened in Seattle where people allowed themselves to get pepper sprayed and we tried out or they tried out all sorts of different herbs to see what would work and what wouldn't work. (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot going on because for several years there, there was a national kind of network of activists and herbal medics that were sharing information and um, moving around the country, just uh, helping to heal during times when people put themselves at harms in harm's way because the government was pretty much um not okay with us questioning corporate control <laughs> right <laughs> At that yeah point, now we yeah, we're to- actually still in <laughs> a not really what it's not okay to question corporate control oh no no yeah, no. yeah so i'm used yeah. to that i mean i that's where it came from and and then you know certain things along the way have excited me like um, you know, doing disaster response after um, Hurricane Katrina. And that's where I have met one of the co-defendants in my uh, court case right now, uh, Mary Blue, and I did work at her, the Hurricane Katrina uh, disaster relief uh, common ground clinic in or New Orleans right after the hurricane. So we we came together there as herbal activists. Um, and she did a whole documentary called Herbal Aid on herbalists who went out into the front lines of, of direct action and um, tried to assist others who were putting their bodies on the line to protect the earth and animals and other things. Sorry, did that include Wendy Hansel? No, I don't think Wendy, because she, there was a couple people, but that's definitely, Wendy has been a part of it. Wendy's um, a big part of that whole movement. I mean, all, all of it, there's, there's 
different bioregions of folks. And Wendy wasn't there yet at Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina. And then, um, you know, Mary lives up on the East Coast and Wendy was, you know, on the West Coast, I think, mm-hmm. at that time. So it, it there's just groups of people that may or may not know each other. Like, I don't know the... Um, what is it, the herbalists without borders, but I'm in total alignment with what they're doing, you know? Yeah, right. So, um, so, and, you know, there's different people around the country that are just doing this because they believe that it's right. And I've, what I've found is that usually if there is a natural disaster or a political action where there needs to be help, usually mm-hmm. an herbalist of some sort is there first like for mm-hmm. hurricane yeah. katrina mo mo who is a nurse herbalist was the first one on the ground with her bike at in new orleans riding oh, wow. her bike around and i worked with her in various scenarios and different political um actions so there's always an herbalist around and i love that i love that there seems to be this gravitation to doing what's right you know people who get into herbalism usually have some sort of the the ones i hang out with (laughs) usually have some sort of we want to do what's right for the earth and we want to do what's right for people and we're not doing this to get rich we're trying to we're trying to do this to make things better because we see a niche that we can fill that the medical system can't you know so um so it's a it's a kind of different view yeah. Yeah, you know Healing you mentioned one. you mentioned the court case. We should touch on that for okay. our listeners. I don't know how familiar they are with the firesider controversy. Um, yes. So, mm-hmm. uh so in February of 2014, I saw on social media. I have to be on social media way more than I ever thought I would have to <laughs> since I have to market on there and so this uh this article from the Commonwealth School of Botanical Medicine or Commonwealth Herbal Center, I think it is, in Boston, Ren Madura put out this article on Facebook about this company that had trademarked a traditional herbal remedy, Firesider, which I think all of us that have been practicing as herbalists have been teaching and making and some of us selling uh, for I don't even know. <laughs> I didn't even know where yeah. it came from. And we we ended, we ended up doing a whole trace back to, to try to figure out exactly where it came from and we're pretty sure it's rosemary gladstar at this point but there's this amazing woman um from the desert desert woman botanicals and she has fire cider and she said she didn't even know about rosemary and she was making it in the 80s too so mm-hmm. yeah it grew know. up yeah i mean it it could have been just a collective <laughs> consciousness yeah. thing or something, but it's a traditional remedy. Thousands of people make it, um, mm-hmm. and it's definitely one of our favorite ones as herbalists and teachers. Who and so uh, I have many students who make it and sell it. So when I heard that it was trademarked, I didn't even know what that meant at first, mm-hmm. and I ended up finding out that that trademark prevented other people from putting fire cider on their label. Right. Right. Uh, So there's clarity needs to be there because a lot of people are like, well, you know, if Rosemary has it copyrighted or somebody has it copyrighted from like the eighties in a book or in classes, how can this happen? And I found out that there's a big difference between copyrights, trademarks and patents and trademark is specific to selling a product and a label. So, right, yeah. 
so they've pretty much uh, they are attempting to corner the market this company on a traditional remedy and so when this happened I saw they had a Facebook page and I was like, well, anyone can make a Facebook page and call it whatever. So I made one, too. (laughs) (laughs) So in in the space of two weeks, we had just as many people on our Firesider page as theirs. And so Mm -hmm. they had Facebook take that down for copyright infringement, I believe, which I don't understand. Um, But we had to start a whole new page. So that one's now called Traditions Not Trademark. And Mm -hmm. um, we started a, a... there's a whole, I mean, hundreds of us that started a uh, site called freefiresider.com, and yeah. we were meeting, and there's lots of people involved. We don't even know all the people, but um, a lot of people, it was like a grassroots response to the idea that one of our traditional remedies was getting trademarked, and how did this happen? And so from there, we filed with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office last June or July, I believe it was, um, to get the trademark office to rescind that as a generic mark and take it away from the company. And and then right when their um, evidence was due, the company's evidence was due in that trademark case uh, two days before, I believe, their evidence was due. They went ahead and sued three of us so that that started the whole court case over again. Oh. So this may be a strategy on their part to just stall Mm-hmm. In, in right. court, we don't know, um, but we we do know that there they had a bunch of stuff due that never had to get turned in um, to the trademark office because they are saying that they, this lawsuit should precede the trademark um, office. Oh, how uh, aggravating! Stuff. Yeah, so we basically had to start all over with our lawyers as a new case. Uh, and 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 resubmit everything again. So mm-hmm. this means that you know they sued three of us: me, Mary Blue, and um, Catherine Langlier for a hundred thousand dollars, which made our jaws drop because right. <laughs> all of us don't. I mean, we don't have anywhere near that kind of money. Mm-hmm. And um, luckily, we have Rosemary Gladstar, who is like the most positive, sweet, loving person who was like, don't worry, I'm behind you all the way. And she's been nothing but, you know, supportive in this to just she's try amazing. to... She's amazing. She really is. And it yeah. makes it makes getting sued a lot easier when Rosemary's <laughs> cheerleader, you know? Like, if she wasn't a cheerleader right now, I don't know how I'd feel. And plus, I'm getting sued with, like, two of the nicest ladies I've ever met. So that are... <laughs> really dedicated to herbalism as their life's work. So it was, I, I told them, you know, we were all like, God, we could, couldn't have asked for a better threesome. I mean, I'm glad, I don't know how we got chosen, but this is great that we got to meet each other. Cause I'd never even met Kathy until the international herb symposium. So, mm-hmm. um, so we all got sued and now we have to go through a whole court case spending a lot of money trying to figure out how to get that dropped because there really is no evidence or reason for it. It's just, I think, a stalling tactic, basically. That's my yeah. personal opinion, at least. But you're still able to do your teaching and run yeah, the school. Yeah, so far. So far, yeah. I mean, the right now, there hasn't been any additional. That's what, you know, if they're going to go ahead and sue us, the question is, you know, what else are they going to do to right. try to improve? impact our businesses i don't know if this is a bullying technique i don't know what it is Mm -hmm. all i know is that i you know i do 
I do have to just move forward with the belief that my community and me are going to be fine and that um, our lawyers basically are pretty much 100% confident that once this goes through the court system, it's it's pretty much not a, a no-brainer that we're going to win. So. Mm-hmm. Right. And this to me, this lawsuit seems like it brings up the question of how herbalism is growing and where we're going with it. Yes. And that was yeah. another, um, what am I trying to say? Of course, my words leave me. <laughs> there was yeah. another direction. theme, direction yeah. that you noticed at the International Herbal Symposium. Yeah. Right? So... You know, I, I got into herbalism pretty much from more of a radical background, you know, and uh, and then I kind of mellowed out in herbalism and, and I healed a lot and I, I still consider myself, you know, I don't, I don't really think I understand even what mainstream is until maybe I suddenly like get confronted with it and get confused and I don't know what it is, you know, so, so mm-hmm. this Shire or the, or the, the lawsuit was an example of that, like going through the system of what a legal case is, is, is more mainstream than my life. And my life consists of waking up and working in the garden and um, educating folks and making it, making things. And, and so for me, um, you know, I came to this from, I've been doing this for over 15, 20 years now, you know, and, and pretty much full time for about... I don't know, well over a decade, I've been supporting myself as an herbalist. So, uh, completely full time. So over full time for those of us that (laughs) it's pretty much 24 seven, but, um, I got into this as for a love of the earth and a love of free clinics and, and serving my community with herbs. And so for me, it's an, you know, this is the direction I've always been in, um, but I always questioned, did I want to get, you know, a, a master's in science and nursing? Or do I, did I want to go into, you know, maybe the Thai Sophia Institute? You know, did I want to get more mainstream legitimacy? And I, you know, one of the biggest influences on me in that way was Margie Flint, who wrote the book, The Practicing Herbalist. And I would go to her and she's one of my mentors and good friends and I would sit with her and I'm like, it's so hard to just be a folk herbalist, Western herbal. I mean, this is hard. This is a lot of work. And she's like, she goes, so you're thinking of, you know, you think that by going back to school or something, you're going to get more or it's going to be easier. And I was like, yeah, she's like, okay, well, you can ponder that, but I, I don't know if that's your path. And so I just kept thinking about it and wondering if I would want to try to integrate. And I did get my license as a massage therapist and I, I do enjoy body work, but as far as the mainstream medical system, I never really felt, um, that I could fit into it. I didn't even know if I would ever make it through the training. Cause one of my friends, when I thought about nursing, she's a nurse and she said, you would not make it through the first hand washing class because you would be arguing the whole time about the germ theory. Like, there's going to be, she's like, there's certain personalities that are just not going to make it through. And I don't know if you're going to be the one that makes it through, but you can try. And so then I started thinking about it more. And um, by the time I, you know, I researched all my options and everything, I just realized that it's almost my activism now to create 
a the world I want to live in and create a profession the way I want to see it and the way that I feel that we as herbalists do deserve to be in a be practicing the way we want to practice and not have to integrate in if we don't want to. And so I actually chose to make it part of my activism as an herbalist now to, to, I have a whole clinical training program that it's not very technical. It's more about working with people, you know, and what is it really like to work with herbs and people? And, you know, you can go read all the clinical trials in the world, but it doesn't change the fact that until you work with herbs in the clinic and people, that's when you really learn herbalism, you know, and, and it plants out in the field. That's, and so to me, you're not going to get that. And some people's role is going to be go be a naturopath and go and get licensed in your state and, and, and bring herbs in that way. And some people are going to do it through nursing and some people are going to do it through botany and whoever, you know, some people are going to integrate different ways. And I've actually decided to not integrate into the medical system and, um, and not, bring in these other roles and, and to stay a little bit more fringe and a little bit more um, studying traditional healing and folk healing in practice. So that's where my practice went as an herbalist. Thank you for spending some time with us. We have a bunch more questions to ask you, but I wanted to end this section of the interview with a little plug for your book, Medicinal Plants of Texas, and remind people that we have a lot more information, links, and resources to the things that we mentioned on this program on our show notes for Real Herbalism Radio. And please be sure to sign up for our new free newsletter so that we can notify you about the availability of our own newest ebook, which is called Cannabis, a Herbalist Guide to Using Medicinal Marijuana. We also have a bunch of upcoming recipes, how-tos, and more detailed information on the topics that we discussed on this podcast as we publish them on thepracticalherbalist.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Pinterest and join in our conversations on Twitter. Now it's time for Herbalism and Homesteading News. Today I'd like to talk about an article that was published on NPR.org on July 13th, 2015. The article is entitled, Should More Women Give Birth Outside the Hospital? by Diana Douglas. Mm -hmm. Sue, I find this whole question of giving birth in a hospital in America to be a crazy, crazy question. (laughs) I mean, yeah, there's so, that's such a big question, It, it for one thing, we take it for granted that that's where babies are born. Right. We have such a, here in the United States, we, I, I believe they said in the article, 99% of babies are born in a hospital. Now in yeah. Oregon, which is where we're recording from, it's one in five babies right. are yeah. born like under a midwife's yeah. care. Yeah. So it's a very different scenario. Right. But we still have this old fashioned 1950s idea that when a woman mm-hmm. is pregnant, she is sick. Right, right, and it's. I mean, and it's there insane. are women that are pregnant, and they are also sick. Yes, but to be pregnant is not a sign of sickness. Right, it is a sign that you're pregnant, and that you're growing a healthy baby. Right, but or you know, hopefully, but it's it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to the hospital. Right, it means that you do need to get good prenatal care. Right, and one of the things the article cited is that the United States is one of the only places where in the countries in the world where um, mortality rate for mothers is. 
going up. Yeah, yeah, it rapidly. Means, it yeah. means giving birth in a hospital is not necessarily going to guarantee mom survives the process. Right, right. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I know there's a lot of cuts to health clinics in different places. Indiana is one mm-hmm. of the places where they really slashed the mm-hmm. funding for health clinics, free health clinics in particular. Right. And and now, you know, people are dying at an extraordinary rate out there. And um, there, there's just, you just have to keep funding public health care. But for those of us that have uh, it, the education, we've been taught, you have other options. Right. You know, that's a real, unfortunately, it's becoming a luxury position. I know for one of the members of our family, when she became pregnant, they just automatically went to the calendar and said, okay, what day do you want to give birth? Um, I'll mm-hmm. be available as a doctor to perform that cesarean section here. Right. And it, there was no, it didn't matter whether the baby was healthy or whether she was right. healthy. That's just the way it was. Yeah. My, my, when my son was born, our uh, attending physician pushed us really hard to induce labor uh, two weeks earlier than I think my son was really due. Mm-hmm. And it was because he had a bike tour that he was going to go participate in overseas. And he wanted us to get the baby out done with, you know, sooner. Yeah. When, I wanted to not have any patients on the books while he was gone. Yes. So I, I ended up in an emergency cesarean. And I'm fairly certain it's due to having been pushed into taking the Pitocin and whatever other, you know, stuff. Whatever I don't remember the names of all the drugs that mm-hmm. were about inducing birth, but... Well, yeah. there was something else with that. He was so sold or so believed that you were... that Finn was two weeks overdue at that point. Yeah, he wouldn't mm-hmm. listen He wouldn't to listen me. to anything about when you conceived or not. So... You know, he got out his little chart and his little wheel and said, well, that's the date. And he was that, pretty sure that yep. he knew when yeah. I had sex. So, <laughs> I, so I, I wouldn't when, know. when Finn was delivered, <laughs> I asked the nurse, you know, right there, they were doing their APGAR test or whatever, and I said, well, is he on time or is he late or is he early? She goes, he's, he's fine. I mean, he's not showing any signs of a baby that's passed, mm-hmm. past due yeah, right. at all. So she said, no, he's fine. In fact, he's probably mm-hmm. a little early. But yeah. You know, at that point, he's already out. No, yeah, right, right. So. right. The cuts had happened by then, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that was very so. frustrating because it was all about his schedule and then not believing what we knew or what we thought we believed. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It, it wasn't even, patient-driven care. Right. It was right. doctor-driven care. It was mm-hmm. like, I have a trip outside of the U.S. and you have to do it now. Yeah. Right. And, and the other thing, so times. yeah, the other thing that I found interesting in the article that they talked about, the actual study is more than 800 pages. Oh, yes. The actual study, I actually, the actual <laughs> I haven't study. read all 800 pages. In fact, it is more than that, but that came from the United Kingdom and it was very, very complex. They put out one of the sections of it uh, last year in, in December, December 2014. Right. And that's enormous and that's yeah. the link that we have on our show notes for I particularly encourage people that are midwives or, or OBGYN to look at that because they it's very very organized and it's very informative and it talks about a wide variety of things like not just midwife care but midwife care in the home yeah it's and there that's what they're coming down to is according to all of these studies and if you want to see the citations that's another link that you can get right. to via the NPR link mm-hmm. and that the citations alone again over 800 pages of right. citations right. so it's not just something like well we really like midwives are really groovy and so we think you should just give them business it wasn't yeah, about that no. at all it's facts it's facts driven yeah and what they're coming up with is for what they call straightforward pregnancies, women that, you know, they, the average pregnancy 
it's very it's healthy and it'll be fine they're they're finding positive results and healthier babies and more comfortable moms and shorter deliveries when women are in the home right which makes sense. I yeah. mean, and there are exceptions to every rule, you know, right. not just unhealthy, but sometimes women don't have healthy homes. Well, you know, one there of might the, be domestic abuse or something like that. One of the things, too, they talked about in the article is that in the UK where the study was commissioned, mm-hmm. the relationship between midwife and doctor is much more partnership. Mm-hmm. So the midwives are well-trained in how to care for the mothers, and they know what to look for when there's a sign of a problem. Right. So they know, and, they can, and they're in contact with the doctor. They've got a partnership there that they're on equal footing, and they hand the mom off and say, okay, the, the doctor needs to take over this point. Here you are, doc. Here's the scenario. Mm-hmm. The doctor knows what to do immediately. He's got all the information, or she's got all the information needed at the time that mom comes in, you mm-hmm. know. And we don't have that in America. Right. There's an adversarial relationship. And I've actually, I came from Minnesota, and 10 years ago in Minnesota when my son was being born, there were midwives who are not associated with hospitals and those who are. And the ones who were associated with hospitals were often snubbed and considered to be not as good because they're, really, they're really just nurses in mm-hmm you know, claiming to be midwives. And likewise, from the other side of the fence, the ones who weren't associated with hospitals were considered to be bad and dangerous because they don't know anything about real medicine. Mm-hmm. It was just very adversarial kind of con- relationship in yeah. what should be, a you know, birth, a, a, you know, a beautiful, life-giving time. Yeah. And here they are empowering fighting. Empowering as it should yeah. be empowering. The other thing is they, they when you have a, a midwife there, you're... That's not just they don't show up when it's birth time. Right. They're, they're with, with you the whole way. time and, and talking about what you're eating. And and mm-hmm. for in my situation, the one, my favorite birth was mm-hmm. with uh, a midwife that lived just, I don't know, eight or nine blocks from me. Mm-hmm. And she had come by. She would actually walk by our house occasionally because it was part of uh, her husband. She and her husband had a little walk that they would do regularly. And like, oh, nice. you're living here. This is really great. And, she would nice. trot in and see how I was doing and say, you know, you can get help with that yard care and, yeah. you know, get along <laughs> with this and this is not your first baby. So she yeah. had a lot of, she helped me feel a lot of confidence in myself. And even though, you know, I was 35 and this was, there was a lot of challenges right. to this pregnancy, but she said, basically, you know, you could really deliver this baby on your own. I'll be there for you, but you, you've, you've done you know this before doing, yeah. and, and I have a lot of faith in you. And, she was right, of course, yeah. when I did have Aaron that I I reached down and practically pulled that baby out myself. But, yeah. you know, I, I didn't quite have the confidence yet. Right. But she called it every step of the way because she knew me. And with my other pregnancy, um, with Kendra, for example, mm-hmm. I had just met that doctor. Right. That was the first time when I'm in there giving yeah. birth. And he basically came in and looked at me and said, well, well she's still pregnant. And then yeah. wander out of the room. And, and, well, thank you. That's super helpful. And then when it came to the actual delivery, you know, I had, I was told to move back. So it was more convenient to him. And by then I was so crabby that I was like, no, I'm staying right here. Right. <laughs> you can move. But I know a lot of other women in the right. birth there. They haven't got to that angry section yet. So right. they're like, OK, whatever's comfortable for you, doctor. And yeah. I, just, I just didn't care. I just yeah. didn't care. Right. <laughs> well, I, I personally, I feel that there was a 
probably I wouldn't have had a C-section if I had had a midwife because mm-hmm. I would have not been nearly as terrified and I would have been listening to my own intuition and right. I think I would have ended up having a natural birth at home that would have been beautiful. But mm-hmm. I'm glad I have my son and oh, you yeah. know, C-section or not, I'm glad he's here. But yeah, And the other, the other piece is that in America we have this weird view of home birth and a lot of women yeah. when they go into home birth and something happens where they need to go to the hospital for extra care mm-hmm. there's a shame in there that right. I don't know where that comes Which is from ridiculous it is ridiculous yeah. you know you were smart enough to go get extra help when you needed it you know if your appendicitis mm-hmm. bursts are you yeah, embarrassed that you went to the hospital to get <laughs> I know, right? You broke your arm. Are you, you embarrassed know? you had a doctor said it? You needed some no. extra care, and you were smart enough. You were a good yeah. parent. You went and took care of it. You need to be proud of that. Right. Don't be ashamed right. of it. And that's another piece in this whole mess that we call childbirth that needs to be fixed. Yeah. So if you have some curiosity about some more of the details, please go ahead and look at our show notes and check out that NPR link. And then be sure, if you are if you are a practitioner, I strongly recommend taking a look. I know it's daunting, over 800 pages, like we said, but check out what they have written in the other link. The other link is from um, the UK. to the article by mm-hmm. the, in the unit from the UK. Mm-hmm. It is by commissioned by the National Collaborating Center for Women's and Children's Health. The article is called Impartum Care or Intrapartum Care, sorry. Mm-hmm. Care and Care of Healthy Women and Their Babies During Childbirth. It was published um, it's clinical guideline 190 methods evidence and recommendation from published in December 2014. Yeah. And so. and you can find like we said within the NPR article notes to some a whole yeah. bunch of their other pieces in the citations like we listed before but you know it's available to you and and I strongly recommend as with everything do your research yeah herbalism 101 this is part of the show where Sue and Candace answer a listener question or teach you about an herbal definition or term covering basic to advanced herbal knowledge if you would like the dirt on herbs herbalism or anything else related you can send your question using our simple contact form at realherbalismradio.com slash herbalism101. If we choose your question for the show, we will send you a free PDF ebook, Natural Nutrition by the Practical Herbalist, currently available for $4.99 at the Practical Herbalist store. Here's Candace and Sue to discuss this show's Herbalism 101 topic. Today we're answering a question from Amber Lee. She asked about pesticide contamination. As someone who mostly has access to semi-urban foraging, I'm worried that almost anything I try to collect will have some level of contamination. Do you recommend avoiding foraging altogether if I am in a proximity to a semi-major city? Candice, Sue? That is an excellent question with a fairly complex answer, don't yeah. you think, Sue? I think we'd like to pick the ones that are complex. <laughs> Simple just isn't for us. But the, I, I know that we had spoken about, in our St. John's Wart uh, post, blog, whatever we did. Podcast. Podcast. It's called Thank a podcast. You. Oh, okay. Big <laughs> words. They, they upset me sometimes. Um, we had talked about being very careful about collecting St. John's wort because it is so good at taking in toxins. That's one of its jobs. It will find a place that is that has been deforested or has been tormented in some way, vacant lots, and it comes in and then it pulls the toxins out. It's a, a it's a bioremediation plant. Right. So with St. John's War, you have to be very careful. So that's point number one is be be aware of the plant that you're collecting and its properties. And, you know, as we say with everything, 
get to know your plant first. Right. There's a variety of plants, like St. John's wort cannabis is another one that we've mentioned being mm-hmm. careful in. Yeah. And they're really good at sucking in toxins. Right. And that mm-hmm. it brings us to point two when you're thinking about cannabis, because often cannabis is used for really acute disease situations, like dealing with the side effects of cancer treatments. Correct. Cannabis is excellent for helping to eliminate nausea. So if you're going to be giving your cannabis medicine to someone who's going to be having dealing with an acute condition, mm-hmm. you want to make sure that there's absolutely no pesticide contamination or right. herbicide or chemical fertilizers. You want completely organic because mm-hmm. their systems are already compromised. Right. So why make it any harder for them? Right. So point two is know your patient yeah. or know your audience, as exactly. a lot of people would say. And then the other point would be, and going around with that exact same thing that we talked about, is... Um, understand that not only are you giving it to a person that might be delicate, but the way that you're giving it to them. For instance, with the cannabis oils or the tinctures, you are condensing that plant into a very potent tincture. Exactly. So you're not only are you condensing all of the properties, but you're condensing what pesticides and herbicides might be on that plant as well. Right. So in the case of something like cannabis, maybe it was grown organic, but at some point in its life cycle, it was given some sort of chemical, which right. in like testing... bombing the place. Yeah, exactly. Like which in testing might show up to be very, very little on the original bud. But after you turn it into cannabis oil, which is essentially extracting the resins and condensing them into just pure Mm -hmm. resin, then that little itty-bitty minute bit of pesticide shows up as significant. Right. So know your plant, know your audience, know your process. And the last one is know the area. Yes. You know, if you're wandering around in your own backyard, you know what you put on your plants and what you haven't put on your plants. And hopefully, you know, the history of your of your area. But in the forest, you may not. So it's really good to have a place that you're harvesting that you've been to several times and that you keep track of it. And that is also not only health make you a healthier wildcrafter, but it connects you more deeply to the earth. So it's good not only for. Um, the medicine that you make, but it makes you a better person and it helps ground you. Just kind of keep track of things. You know, right. don't be a tourist in your own world. Well, and as as a semi-urban forager like I am, mm-hmm. knowing my neighbors and my neighborhood and knowing who's spraying what and who isn't, mm-hmm. even for simple things like dandelion. You know, right. it's a tonic herb. It doesn't, it's not an herb that if you pick it in a pesticide-laden area, it's mm-hmm. not... Um, the same kind of bioremediation that St. John's wort does, Mm -hmm. but I would prefer not to have the dandelions from my neighbor who does spray them with chemicals. I'll take them from the neighbor on the other side who doesn't spray them with chemicals. Especially if you're trying to get something out of your kidneys, which would accumulate the pesticides would accumulate. So those four points, your, your plant, your person, your process and your area. Um, Wait a second. I have one, one more point on this is that, what about um, roadsides? Um, you know, she's uh, mentioning that she's in a semi-urban area, and a lot of times, you know, these herbs with St. John's wort and other things grow right on the roadside. And you know, should you harvest them or not? Right, I've done that before, where I've been driving along and I see a St. John's wort, for example, mm-hmm. and I was all excited and turned the car around and freaked out my children because I wanted to go check <laughs> it out, but um, I did not harvest it. It was a beautiful St. John's wort, but oh. I didn't harvest it because it was too close to a very busy road. And what I did also to that it resulted in annoying my children was going farther down the road, stopping 
And I cracked the windows. You know, they weren't they weren't <laughs> um, <laughs> let them hang their tongues out. And then I traveled away from the road so that I could find another patch of it. Because you see right. one, you're going to see more, Most especially likely, with yeah. plants like that. But there's a lot of petrochemicals that um, come out of exhaust or, or lead comes from um, even the the, um, the gasoline we have now. It still puts lead into the air in a smaller amount. There's all kinds of stuff that the road, road right. debris is pretty toxic. Yeah, even in the city... I usually try to make a rule of at least six to eight feet away from the curb. Correct. So, you know, I'm kind of walking into people's lawns and I ask for permission, of course. But mm-hmm. but there are plants like oyster mushrooms that are, they convert or transform the toxins that they remediate such that there's no toxin yeah. available in the mushroom itself. So, sure. They test it in and it's edible. It's yeah. still edible. But that's another, that goes down that list of those four items yeah. you need to know. But there are some things that are so sensitive, St. John's Ward, again, that mm-hmm. I stay very far where I do not see yeah. in the road. Right. What about you know? bottle brush? That's one that's all along the roadsides. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I usually just see that in, in more rural settings. I, I rarely see it, you know, like in an urban mm-hmm. setting. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I've seen it a few places in town, but not often. Yeah, and there mm-hmm. are some plants that do. They'll, they will let you know by how they grow. For instance, blueberry. I planted a blueberry plant a little too close to the sidewalk where I live, which is on a busy street. And the ones behind it died, and the one closest to the side, or, or the one closest to the sidewalk died, and the ones behind it were okay. So mm-hmm. just in that case, it was a matter of a few feet. Right. So yeah, the plants will let you know if they. Yeah. Are good, yeah. yeah. So still stick to our four points yeah. of the plant and the person and the process and the area, and you should be good. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Real Herbalism Radio. Your hosts have been Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. To find more information and recipes from today's show or to leave a comment or suggestion, visit us online at realherbalismradio.com. If you're feeling social, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thepracticalherbalist. Don't forget to look up our ebooks and herbal folios at amazon.com. Use the search terms practical herbalist. This show has been sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of high-quality organic bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. You can visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. If you'd like to sponsor Real Herbalism Radio, just contact us through our website at realherbalismradio.com slash contact. Till next time, this is Patrick with Real Herbalism Radio and The Practical Herbalist.